And so I actually ended up dropping out of high school, not once, but twice. I never graduated. And while all my friends were off to college, I was living with my parents, gaming up to 16 hours a day in their basement. I remember I was, I was drunk when they handed me my son in the hospital. They didn't know I was drunk. I worked with people who could stay abstinent from crack cocaine. And then they went back to prison because they could not stay abstinent from marijuana. They will send inappropriate pictures, primarily of their body parts. Our teens will send back their naked pictures or partially naked pictures. I had overdosed in eighth grade. I think that was shortly after I was suspended. Our teens are going through their hardest life transition in a world of rapid change and information anarchy. These are their stories and the advice from experts dedicated to helping them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I come from a family of teachers. My brother is a teacher. His wife is a teacher. My other sister-in-law is a teacher. My mother was a teacher. And I did a lot of work as a teacher in charter schools. And I absolutely understand what teachers are going through in a it being underpaid, overworked, a tremendous amount of responsibility and not much compensation for it. And we're still dealing with a relatively antiquated school system. And everybody knows the story of where the school system came from and who developed it for the factory workers, kids, and et cetera, et cetera. And that was a long time ago. And and bless the heart of every single teacher out there. That To me, that's the warrior personality, really. I mean, let's be clear. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it for the kids. They're doing it because they love teaching and love being an educator. And, and it's a stretched, stressed system. And the system is broken. Any child has the capability of learning, and they have the capability of doing very well, depending on the environment. And there's so many different kinds of kids who who thrive in so many different kinds of environments that a singular environment is not going to be supportive for all kids. And we know this. This is not a surprise. This is not a provocative conversation for anyone. And people get very defensive about teachers, and that's not who's on trial here. The system's on trial. And we need to question the system. My guest today, I met many years ago as he was the assistant principal at Netherlands Senior High School. And I was teaching a workshop for kids called My Power. And it was great fun. And Ed and I uh, struck up a relationship. And I, I watched as he then left Netherlands School District and created his own school, Catalyst. And some of the kids who had graduated from my program ended up in his program. So I've known Ed for many years. And we go in and out of contact with each other. But Ed not only has a great background, a tremendous amount of experience, but he is, I'm going to, I'm going to call him an expert in curriculum design. And he has worked with kids at every level from a camp with dyslexic kids to kids in recovery to your run of the mill public school system kids. He's the guy we need to talk to to figure out how we're going to get these kids educated when a when school gets in the way of education what do you do i think ed has some answers for us welcome parents to beyond risk and back my guest today is ed Port. ed thank you so much for being here i'm so happy for you and i to be satelliting each other again it's been a few years thank you so much Aaron. i love our relationship love working together on kids and it's really fun to work with you so i really appreciate being back in touch 
Thanks for saying that. All right, let's jump in. First, because education and when parents get that question, what about school? And we want to we want to talk to somebody who knows everything about everything about all schools. And you're the man to bring in on this. So please tell the parents, teachers and clinicians who they're listening to and, and how you ended up where you ended up. So just a little bit of my background. I grew up um, a high-performing student. I was a solid B student. I grew up in the Boulder area, and then I uh, ended up getting my my degree in education. I taught for about three years in middle school, and then I started getting bored. But I knew well enough that I should stay closely attached to the public system. And in doing so, I became I got my principal's license, developed a few programs in the, the Boulder Valley schools managed several others, um, and then went out on my own. And I think one of the strengths that I brought to the table that many educators of alternative schools don't is that I had a real solid foundation in all the education law and procedures and policies that districts and schools have. And from there, I, I took it out and I've developed uh, my own schools from there. But, but you know, I was highly functional. I started with that. Many of the people who start alternative programs were alternative learners themselves, and I was not. I could have been, but I wasn't. Ed, you talked about alternative learners. You talked about the the concept of alternative student. How does a parent know if they've got an alternative learner or an alternative student? If a parent has a student who they know is pretty sharp, but the student is not performing well in school, we want to look at why, and it's very possible needs more of a hands-on approach to education. Maybe there's a learning difference. Maybe there's some sort of mental health concern. Maybe they're gifted and talented and have not yet done identified. There can be a lot of different reasons why a student just isn't fitting in and being successful in a mainstream school. And it's at that point parents go looking for an alternative. So pretty much, I mean alternative by any school that is outside of the big mainstream school districts. Yeah, pretty much that. You know, I have two kids. Both are in college right now, and both of them did fine in school because they knew how to play ball, but both of them were definitely alternative learners. Both of them were very self-directed and motivated when they found something they were passionate about. And I have always been the type of person where if I have to sit and listen to someone talk and teach, I'm not going to learn anything. But if I am required to teach it, I can learn anything and then teach it. And then I really know it because I learned through teaching. I, my, my son learned how to build a car off of videos on YouTube. If my daughter is able to give a speech about it or do a project based on what she is learning to present, it's a no brainer for her. So it's, I'm willing to bet that any parent, teacher or clinician listening to this is going to quickly draw a conclusion that all children are alternative learners, that everybody has a unique learning style. Is that true, or is there a finite amount of learning styles that have been identified? Well, Aaron, I look at schools, uh, kids in schools, as kind of like one-third of them are in the right place, and they're thriving. About a third of the kids are surviving. It sounds like your kids might have been two examples of kids who would have thrived had they had different opportunities, but they but they survived. And then a third of the students are really, really struggling. So I think it's a matter of degree. You don't, some people say in terms of gifted students, oh, all kids are gifted, all right? 
I get I get where you're coming from. All kids are, are unique for for sure, and they all have strengths. But there's a certain criteria to be identified as gifted. And I would say alternative, just to try to narrow it down, the students who really are not making it well in school, or maybe they're straight-A students, and they're so unhappy that they, they really need something different. I've had students like that, too. You and I talked off the air as we were beginning about a talk you do, a book concept that you're working on, Smart Kids, Stupid Grades. I love that idea because I have never had a parent come to bring their kid to my facility or ask for my support for their kid and say, you know, my kid's just dumb and I need help. They Every single one of them, 100% say, my kid is really, really smart. I don't know what's going on. And I think it's an easy finger to point to say, well, the school system that they're under is getting in the way of their education. That's that's an easy, that's a, that's a write-off. We can all say that, but what do we do about it? When you suddenly get identified that your kid is a visual-spatial learner, that they think in pictures, that they can solve complex math problems without writing every, anything down, but the teacher wants to see the work, so they're getting bad grades – this, this all of a sudden, now the parent is under this burden that they've got to find a different kind of school or a different kind of educator and a different kind of, and not all of these things are free. So, what happens? How, how, let me ask this a whole different way, I guess. What's wrong with okay. the school system? If we know that there are so many different types of learners, how come we're not dividing it up and, and putting these kids in the appropriate learning systems? Well, I'll tell you, I think it gets back to your introduction about the factory system and the way the schools were designed in the first place. You know, schools are designed in such a way that most of the students are doing okay. And they develop the master schedule around the teacher's needs. The student is not first and foremost in the mind of the development of most traditional schools. They have systems that students have to fit into. And, you know, it's a matter of scale. When you go smaller, it's easier, it becomes easier and easier to assist the student in individualizing their education and so forth. So I think, and, and the other difficult thing about big public schools and school systems is, boy, trying to turn that ship to face a different direction and become more student-centered, more learner-based, that's a tough one. Now, that's Why? a very, very large challenge. Why is it so tough when pretty much everyone agrees that the system is broken. What's what's missing? Where's the gap in saying, everybody's saying, yeah, this isn't working, but it's a hard shift to turn. Is that just because of the size of it? Or is that because we still have some stubborn people on the school boards or administrators or what? Why, where's the difficulty of making a shift coming from? I think there's a few answers to that. One is that the shift is so large, it's difficult to turn. Another one is that they're still being directed by people who probably did just fine in a traditional system, and that's, that's their default. Another thing that I found in the development of my programs is that I can't just take a typical 50-minute class, seven classes a day, five days a week type of schedule and gradually merge it into the type of programs that I've developed because there's just natural conflicts come up. I took the program to one facility where my expectations were that we'd be able to use my model in their environment, only to discover that the traditional environment was so entrenched and in this situation so necessary that 
Um, my alternative means of getting kids directly involved in designing their own education never even got a chance. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's one. Yeah, that's that's my not so successful story, but I learned from that. But I think it, the point is that to to get to something different that they need, they need to start all over again. And can you imagine the millions of kids? <laughs> There are thousands of kids in the school district, and the teachers are not, most teachers are not adventurous people. Um, I'm an exception to that. Um, but most teachers are, you know, they want to do what they do, and they want to do it really, really well. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to take their 30 students and do something very, very differently with them. They're just not, most teachers are not that adventurous. So we're looking at a pretty conservative system. Okay, let's head down a different street here because we could easily fill up this whole time talking about our frustrations with schools and systems and and even people who are involved. But let's let's help the parent right now by addressing some of the direct issues. A lot in social media and yours and my generation, uh, the generation above us, we, we're looking down on this, the millennial generation and the generation Y, you know, they don't know how to handle discomfort. They don't know how to stick with something. They don't know. And we, we have all these complaints, but every generation complains about the lower ones and all the lower ones complain about all the older ones. And it's, it's wonderful fun, but. One generation gaps. Yes, the generation gaps, right? So, but one of the things that I am seeing get called out a lot on uh, social media and stuff is the stress that teenagers are going through. And, and, you know, people say things like, well, I was a teenager. I wasn't so stressed out. And when I was stressed out, you just had to deal with it. You had to buckle down, grab your bootstraps, pull yourself up by your big boy pants and get her done. Is this... And I know my answer, but from an educator standpoint, is this teen anxiety, this stress level that these teenagers going through, is this real or is this just something in their field that they're using as a to relieve some pressure? This this anxiety that they're experiencing today is 2,000 percent real. It's the real thing. And I say when I about 20 years ago, when I started developing alternative programs, we barely knew what anxiety meant. You're looking at depression or, or bipolar disorder. But um, anxiety has really, really taken over. And I think part of that has to do with how much information is coming at us, at our at our children. And the children do absorb their parents' stress. So, you know, parents are pedaling as fast as they can to keep things going for their students. The student is absorbing information almost unfiltered from all over the world. Parent comes home stressed out and student internalizes that, um, you know, and that just, that doesn't even get into the the clinical or the trauma-related reasons why a student might be stressed. How does the stress and anxiety, how are parents going to see this this high level of stress affect their kids' grades? What are they, I, I, maybe not grades, but how are they going yeah. to be able to recognize that, that stress and anxiety really might be an issue that's contributing to low performance in school or super high performance, like like overperforming, overachieving, hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think a parent might see at home is a student who is burying himself in his bedroom. So many, there's so many cave dwellers that have been so overstimulated by what's going on that they their anxiety shows up as, I don't want to go to school. 
one of my students contributing to my book did that all the way through eighth grade. I mean, he came up with every excuse in the world why he, he hated school, wouldn't go to school, came to our school for one day, then went to an outdoor wilderness program, came back and ended up being an absolutely stellar student. And so I think he was overstimulated by the large school environment. I think, and uh, his anxiety came out as, I'm not going to go. Sometimes anxiety will come out as anger, you know, explosive anger. Where did that come from? Um, so there are a few different ways that anxiety would show up at home and affect their success at school. Some parents get handed the term when their kids are, you know, not thriving in a big school environment and, you know, yeah, parents don't quite understand. Well, you have all these friends, you have all these opportunities. And then they get handed a term called sensory integration. Can you explain that a little bit to the parents? Well, Aaron, that's a question I don't want to answer. How come? <laughs> cut, cut that one. Cut that one out because that, that's not a that's not a term that I use, and that I would be struggling to come up with something intelligent to say. Okay. But you can ask a different type, some, a different, you know, similar type of question. Well, you, integration. You you brought up the that concept of being overwhelmed. That one of the things was mm-hmm. was uh, uh, that can contribute to the stress and anxiety of being in a, a big environment and stuff like that is. Um, okay. in, in the clinical world, it's called sensory integration, that the brain can only handle so okay. much. And some right. of the things that you were saying about, you know, lashing out with anger or isolating in the school and not just being able to handle it may not just be, oh, the kid can't handle it, but actually the brain right. can't handle it. How do you see that show up? Oh, yeah, that's that's a uh, that's a real good one. You know, sometimes it shows up as a student who is extremely affected socially, um, picks up the the vibes of a room, and if there's anger, that student is going to feel that anger. Some students have a difficult time screening out stimulus. Uh, some of the students simply don't have uh, the means to make it through the day because they are so overwhelmed by the stimulus of people coming and going and, and transitions and so forth. So sometimes, you know, they talk about gifted students sometimes um, have certain intelligences and sensitivities and so forth. Um, and so it's been identified more and more more readily with the gifted and talented population. And I take that and I extrapolate that down to the general population. It's like many people, like you just said, are struggling with, sensory integration, stimuli coming at them in multiple ways and not really being able to cope with that. Now, we're talking about something that's different than ADD or ADHD. I was a nice and early test subject for Ritalin back in the 70s. And, you know, ADHD is that was becoming kind of the, well, not kind of, it was becoming the new thing to say, look at what we discovered. Look at what's going on with the brains. And been given Ritalin and coffee, and it's certainly my performance at school changed. But one of the things I've learned recently that caused my issues as a kid growing up in school was not that I couldn't pay attention. It was that I paid attention to everything equally. The kid shifting in the seat mm. next to me, the teacher writing on the board, what the teacher was saying, the, t- the clicking of the t- uh, uh, clock, everything 
holds my attention. Everything in the environment. I see everything. I hear everything. And if there's not enough to see in here, you should see my office. My wall is covered with pictures and, uh, and information. <laughs> so no matter where I look, I have to maintain that level of stimulus to be able to function. Now, certainly, a teacher cannot facilitate an environment of ADHD kids unless that teacher really likes listening to heavy metal music while they teach. But there is, if, if we can provide the environment that works with kids with stress and anxiety. So in this classroom, there's nice soft music. The teacher's talking in a very NPR voice in a very calm and regulated way. And then they go into the other class that, that is for the ADD kids and the teacher is big and it's loud and it's exciting and there's some music going on at the same time and every 10 minutes they're getting up and bouncing around for a second to, you know, maintain that high energy level. And it just seems like if we could facilitate a classroom for every kid, every kid's a genius. Do you believe that or do you? Oh, my. Absolutely. <laughs> Again, stayed away from the technical meaning of genius, but absolutely, yes. If we had classrooms like that where every student could use their strengths and, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm talking about using their challenges in one direction, turn into strengths in another. Hyper-focusing or just getting into the lab, absolutely, that'd be fantastic. I, I, now, I think that would be great. In, in watching you in all these years, it seems that the program that you created, at least with Catalyst, that I got to witness students going through firsthand, one of the ways that you facilitated this was giving them control and responsibility over their education. That's a lot of responsibility and control for someone who the parents listening might go, they aren't interested. They want to play video games. They they want to sit in the house and listen to music all day, and you're going to give them control of their education. So justify this. If I'm going to follow the kid, and that's, that's one of our theories at Fire Mountain in our education is go that way. That's what we call it. If the kid asks a question that takes you off topic, follow them for a second. See where it goes, because it's generally genius. But if if I was to say to all these kids, hey, create your own education, I find myself a little nervous and trusting that they're going to come up with something valid. What have you found, and, and how do you justify this? Well, I have found that, in general, give a kid control, and their energy level will go through the moon. Um, now, by that... I, I mean, you know, you've got to stay within the parameters, have an expectation of, of, of curriculum. curriculum. When we're done with this, th- you know, this is what you should learn. Now, how do you want to demonstrate that? Um, giving the students the opportunity to research and go in depth into something that they're truly passionate about is a great way to give them control and for you to, you know, maintain um, some curriculum expectations of your own. That student that is that is digging deep is going to get really damn far and then start going laterally. Start, well, why did that happen? And start learning more information on the side that feeds into what they're researching in the first place. And that student becomes more and more interested in their education. I think to get back to your question, what do you do with the kid who has shown no motivation, no control, in, of his education before, it's challenging at first. 
but the teacher needs to believe in the student until the student can believe in themselves. And uh, give them the opportunity, and one small piece at a time, give them something to have control over. And you'll be surprised, within four or five months, that student is going to be driving um, his own education. So is this giving credence and legitimacy in your mind for parents who are considering or have had to use homeschooling or unschooling because their kid has just completely, quote, end quote, failed out of the system? I think the first thing that a parent wants to do is honestly assess themselves as to whether they can provide the comprehensive opportunities and challenge that their student requires. Too many people say, school's not working for my kid, I'm going to homeschool them, and they really don't know what they're doing. But there are also you know, examples of parents that are usually quite uh, exceptionally intelligent, and they can provide stimulating environment for their own kids. So, you know, I'm a big proponent of public schools. I'm a proponent of you know, homeschooling under the right situation, and certainly a proponent of satellite programs and learning centers and smaller alternative schools. And it's just a matter of finding what's going to work best for the student. What time should a ideal school day begin? Well, the research is telling us that it should be starting a lot later than most of them do now. Say, you know, 9 o'clock, 9.30 would be a real good time to start school. In our programs, we have, we generally had a four-period School day, so a student would be in a class for about an hour and a half. But if they were um, really challenged in the morning, they may not even start their classes until the afternoon. It might take a little bit longer, but they're uh, again they're able to use their their strengths and not be taken down by their by their challenges. Um, but yeah, of course, the research is telling schools to start later than they do. That's very complicated. The bus schedule and the after-school activities really have a lot to do with why school districts are not making that turn. You know, I I, uh, want to talk about the after-school activities for a second because in doing my research to the causes of addiction, a study that I found that was published by Harvard and then seconded by Stanford a while back said to keep kids from being at risk – you got to do these three things. And one was uh, real education about brain chemistry and the effects of every kind of drug, nicotine, alcohol, coffee, all of it, fast food, everything on your brain. That really helped kids. The second thing was getting to know your kids' friends' parents, like neighbors knowing neighbors, um, parents knowing parents. That was another big thing. But the third one was something to do between 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock. And that was that's a that's a kicker because a lot of parents have to work. We've got, we've got big mortgages for our big houses, for our big yards, and even if we don't have big houses and big yards, if we're in uh, living in a place like Boulder, um, our our little house is costing us big money, and so both mom and dad have to have jobs, or it's a single parent and they're working long hours or double shifts or double jobs, so. That that brings in this after school thing. What a does that just mean sports? What is what is this after school thing for you? Well, 
certainly the research is telling us that those hours that you outlined between about three and seven, those are prime time for kids getting in trouble. And so, yeah, absolutely, they need to be involved with something. One of the things I'm concerned about is overstructuring a student's life. It's like, okay, now it's time for soccer practice. Now it's time for, you know, this and this and that. Um, but you're absolutely right. The, the adult, and I think that gets back to what's causing so much anxiety is the parents are working so hard that um, the student is taking on their, their stress, but they also have some downtime. So, no, it's not just sports, of course, but I think that more middle schools and high schools should have more after-school programs that, you know, maybe they're academically oriented. Maybe it's a rocket club or, you know, something like that, or maybe it's the chess club. But they tend to have those types of things at elementary level, but they're fewer and fewer when you get um, to middle school and high school. And one of the things, that would be an excellent opportunity to develop a relationship, not only relationship with the students, but a relationship, a meaningful relationship with an adult. And the research is telling us, too, that at the age that, you know, and we're talking early to mid-teens, they are looking for relationships. We compartmentalize their, you know, their learning into classes with specialists, and then the bell rings. And given that, you know, the afternoon activities would be a fantastic way to meet mentors, study things more in depth. So, yeah, you hit that one on the head. Are you a traditionalist? Is uh, Are these iPhones and iPads and computers ruining education, or is it an enhancement that we haven't truly embraced yet? It's a little bit of both. It's a lot of both, I guess. The cell phones and so forth, you know, they have built-in tools, and I'm a proponent of Okay, we've got our tool kit right here. Turn it off, put it in your pocket. We'll pull it out if we need. If we need to just, you know, search something on the web or use the calculator. Um, you know, you got a tool, and so let's let's keep it in your pocket until we need to use it as a tool. In terms of social media, oh my gosh, you you said earlier, and I meant to follow up on that. Um, the face-to-face communication is not what it used to be by any stretch. You know, social media has uh, developed a whole new way of people relating to another, to one another. Not answering emails or not answering texts has become the norm. And, um, boy, what it used to be able to problem solve in person, um, kids, uh, a lot of kids these days, they simply don't know what that's like. So what's next for you? What uh, what is what are the what are the projects you have coming up with? I mean, you've done so many different versions of education for kids. You you have a lot to tell parents. How are you going to get this out to them? Well, I've got uh, I've developed my consulting business. It's called Catalyst Education Design Consultants, and working really with two different populations. One is parents, parent groups. Um, groups of individuals who want some information or support. Um, and the other one are the school professionals who have a program and they'd like to en- enhance it in some way. Or they have a concept, but they don't know how to start it. Um, and so those are the things that I really enjoy doing because I believe I've got the research digested. That's not that I'm over because I'm a lifelong learner and I love to love to learn 
with each new project that comes my way, I'm digging in and learning more and more and more. That's the type of person I am. But it's making myself available to help, you know, the educators improve their schools and the parents and parent groups find some answers and some activities um, for their students. So the book you're writing is uh, The Catalyst of Resilience. This you're writing in conjunction with a bunch of uh, students. Yes, yes. I've, uh, people have been saying for the longest time that I should write a book. I said, yeah, I know, I want to. <laughs> and now it's finally, now is the time. But I've known from the very beginning that I wanted to include the voice of the student and the voice of the parent. And I guess that's just fundamental to who I am. I'm going to develop schools where kids have a voice and some control, and same with the book. This book isn't about me. It's about them and how they felt and how they coped. The word catalyst, no mistake there. I tell people all the time that they say, oh, Ed, your school saved my kid. It's like, well, I feel like I was here at the right at the right time, but also the systems that Catalyst creates are what gives the student the opportunity to completely transform who they are. No, and I think it's good. Uh, And you are also developing a a game. Yeah, I've uh, well, that game, right now my working title is Now That Makes Sentence, and it's, uh, it's a board game. And I developed it when I was teaching in, in a dyslexic school between grades two and six and created teams and kids were working competitively against somebody else to put together sentences to make sense and earning more points for more sophisticated sentences and recognizing parts of speech and needed an adjective. Um, so anyway, that is a lot of fun and the real successful. I just need to you know, <laughs> put it together and market it, get it out there. You and I have not talked about this thing. I and mean, it's, it's the, the last thing I want us to, to discuss before we end today's show. But I have been telling parents for years something they don't want to hear. And because I have the opportunity to work with you know, a lot of different parents from different backgrounds, they all come very worried about their child's education. Fire Mountain is also a middle school and a high school. We have our own academy. We are, we are a, an accredited uh, education program. But what I tell parents when they come in and say, my kid's failing, they haven't been to school in six months, they never do their homework, you know, what they've been suspended, they've been... What I tell them is, listen... Your kid can always go to school, right? That right now, their mental health is more important than their education because their education will never mean much if they don't get their mental health issues under control. And we don't like to say you can always go back to school. But the truth is, is I've had business partners who are my age who went ahead and got their high school diploma. I have I the opportunity, if I want to go back to college starting tomorrow. I could sign up. I could do online. I could do. Do you agree with that? Or is there an, a level of importance to having them educated, making them go to school, having them be a part of a school program now? Well, I, so I think I fundamentally disagree with you about, about halfway. Um, I feel like the school is the center 
can be the center of, of the student's, you know, world. Services can come to the student. Peers can come to where the student is. School can be the gathering place for ideas and problem solving and so much that they're, that they're asking for. And therapeutic help can be part of that. It could be an educational program that's inside a therapeutic school. It's a therapeutic program that's inside a school. Um, but in terms of missing an opportunity, I think some students do miss an opportunity. And I, I just, speak from experience, I've known a few of these, where if their special needs have been recognized and supported and encouraged, um, then going on to college would have been a natural step for them. But it wasn't. And not until later did they realize, wow, you know, this is a kid who was processing at the third percentile, had a 98 percentile in terms of conceptual understanding, processing so slowly that it wasn't recognized in time for college to be the next step for for that that kid. So I, you know, I want schools to have a larger, more significant role in the context of working together with the mental health professionals. Well, I do always say, and I have always said this, that if we began to teach emotional intelligence in elementary school, continued it in middle school, and then in high school really did some aggressive emotional intelligence work that I would be out of a job. And I would love to see that day. I would love to see the time where having a place like mine is not necessary because kids have the emotional intelligence. Uh, Crap, adults have the emotional intelligence enough to deal with the stress, the anxiety, the depression, the trauma, the abuse, the abandonment, all of it. Um, but we don't. And until then, I, I agree with you. I think a massive next step for our education system, public, private, and personal, is to integrate mental health. I think that that's a game changer and could be the beginning of turning this gigantic ship around. I totally agree, Aaron, that, you know, emotional intelligence is very, very important and it's key. Um, just, you know, I, I totally agree with you. That would be, that is part of, you know, the curriculums in the school that I, that I work with. Amazing. Ed, thank you so much. Ed Porritt, author of the up and coming book, The Catalyst of Resilience and His Game. Now that makes sentence. Ed, thank you so much for being on Beyond Risk and Back. I am going to be connecting with you to help me with our English curriculum, particularly my part, the hero's journey and the archetypes piece. As my book finishes up, I'm very passionate about it. And as I'm writing a curriculum, I realize I'm a great trainer, but I don't know how to do that whole other job that teachers do, which is develop the curriculum. And so I need support in that. So I will be contracting you to come in and work with me to do this because I need help. It's been on my daytimer way too long. So thank you for being in my life because right now I need you, dude. Uh <laughs> Aaron, we are like minds and I've known that for a long time. And I really appreciate you contacting me and including me and to work with me is all so greatly appreciated. And it's what keeps me invigorated and Keep it going. So thanks so much. It's my pleasure, Ed. Thanks for being uh, on the show. Folks, as I have said always, you take care of yourself first. 
You take care of your adult relationship second so that you can take care of your children third. In that way, we do our best work with our children. How else are we going to take care of our children if we do not take care of ourselves or our adult relationships? This has been Aaron Huey. The show is Beyond Risk and Back. Folks, I will see you soon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to FireMountainPrograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.